right on both sides of the double door there. Uh, and if you need any, actually, Mike's got the basket. If you need one, go ahead and raise your hand. He can get it to you right now. So if you need a communion cup. And, yes, they look like the ones that had uh, strong drink, uh, but this is... In, <laughs> This is indeed just juice, so just so you know, all right? I know, I'm sorry for some of you. Um, <clears throat> that's all right. Uh, so, uh, we're really excited for that you're here today. We're really excited to be able to worship together. But let's open our time now in prayer, and then we'll move right into our singing time. Uh, and we're really looking forward to that. So let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for just bringing us together. Uh, God, throughout this whole last year, the ups and the downs, the, the questions, the uh, the times of anxiety, the times of just not knowing what was going on, Lord, that you have kept your word, that you are still true, no matter what the world around us is doing, whatever's happening around us. We thank you that you have brought us together week by week. Thank you that you have now brought us together in a new way today. I pray that as we sing, and as we worship, as we fellowship, as later on we will be able to have communion with one another, and as we are able to hear from your word, again, that today you would be glorified, that we would receive a blessing of all that you have given us today and that we wouldn't take it for granted and Lord that we would truly be grateful and thankful for all that you've done all that you're doing and all that you're going to do help us not to lose sight of the work that you're constantly doing and the goodness that you have shown us each and every day of our lives and today right now I just pray that you would receive all the glory that you are due as we sing to you this morning and I pray all this in Jesus name amen let's stand Sir 
Before we are seated, would you just join me as we close this portion in prayer? Lord, I want to thank you for this opportunity again that you've given us to sing your praises. And this is not about us being able to sing, but it's about us being allowed to worship and praise you together. And I want to praise you for this time that we've had. Thank you for the fact that you are the God that is holy above and greater than and totally distinct from anything or anyone else. God, we thank you today that you are the name above all names, that you are the great God that we worship today. Would you help us to stay focused on you this morning as we continue our time together? And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, again, we're going to be taking communion in just a few minutes. Uh, I'm going to take a few minutes to give some announcements, and this is also to function as a little bit of a buffer. Uh, If uh, anybody's coming in late, they can be seated. Uh, And also, uh, if any of you need to leave for any reason, you can do that uh, while I'm giving announcements. Although, you know, announcements are the most exciting thing, so I don't know why you'd want to leave. But um, we are, uh, as you see, things are different than they've been for quite a while now. Uh, We're all in the sanctuary together. Um, This was uh, this has been a goal of ours for a while now, and we are going to be using the month of May to kind of experiment a little bit um, and uh, see how it can work best going forward. Uh, we want to find a way to bring us together as a body uh, as much as we can uh, and at the same time still provide um, comfort to provide um, a little bit of, uh, you know, just safety for all of us to care about one another. And we are here to worship together and to love one another and to fellowship and we're happy uh, that this is how this is going to go. But just so you know, we are transitioning and this is going to be the start of that where we are here in the sanctuary together to sing at 10 o'clock. Then there's going to be this little five minute gap time-ish for me to give some announcements for people to make their way in if they've come in just for the sermon time. And then we'll be going right into today. It'll be communion. But normally it'll be going right into the sermon time. Uh, so 10.30 is when you're going to want to be here if you're only coming for the sermon. Uh, we'd love you to come, obviously, at 10. So everything is going to start at 10. Also, many of you uh, maybe knew this or came in this morning to uh, enjoy this, but there will be coffee out in the south wing at 9.30 on Sundays. Uh, so this is for the month of May. That's five Sundays. And maybe we'll make some adjustments as we go. And as we adjust, we'll definitely let you know what those adjustments might be. And then by the month of June, we're hoping to bring ABF and Sunday School back into our Sunday morning program, or our Sunday morning time. Uh, and that includes Sunday School for the kids as well. I did have a few questions about that. Uh, so that'll be Adult Sunday School, or ABF, Adult Bible Fellowship, as well as our Kids Sunday School. We're hoping to get all that started in June. Now, one significant change that's going to be happening as that was different than it was whatever it was, a year and two months ago or whatever it was when we were having normal services, uh, we are going to make a, a change in how our schedule works. Instead of having ABF and Sunday school before service, we're going to have service before ABF and Sunday school. Um, if you have any questions about that, feel free to ask any of us. Uh, specifically, uh, you know, you can feel free to ask me. I think this is an opportunity for us to uh, maybe uh, give a jump start to our ABF and our Sunday school program. And so we're going to try that. And that's going to be coming in June. Um, and so I just want everybody to be aware of that. But even through this whole time, remember service in May and June is going to start at 10 o'clock. So it is a little earlier than it was back when it was, but it's the same time as it's been. <laughs> so uh, that's how uh, things will go forward from here. If you have any questions or concerns, uh, please, we are 
welcoming and open to any suggestions, any questions, any concerns that you might have about the changes that are being made, please feel free to come to any one of us as elders. We would love to answer your questions, and if we can't, or if it's a concern that we need to address, we'll talk about that. And again, the name of the game is adaptability. We're trying to adapt. We're trying to do what is best in a safe and wise way. And so we would just ask you for, first of all, your grace and your understanding, but also for your input. Please don't just feel like it doesn't matter and you would, and not say anything. We'd love to have some input as we go through this process. Um, a couple other announcements I want to make is for our Sunday night uh, epic teens. Um, we are our schedule is going to be a little weird. We're going to we're extending it through May. If you hadn't heard that, we're going to take our epic teens all the way through the end of May this year. But there's a few things going on in May that are going to make things a little weird. So next week, epic teens, there is none. Because it's Mother's Day. So teens, make sure you have a gift for your mom. Make sure you're ready to spend time with your mom. Clean the house for your mom. Do whatever you can do to honor your mom next week. So that's Sunday night. No teens. Uh, yeah, so moms, if you have a teen, make sure. That's their assignment, right? That's their assignment. Uh, they, they Instead of coming to Epic, they need to, like, make dinner or something. Like, make them do so. Or clean their room. Whatever it is. All right. Then we're going to meet the next week normal. And then the week after that, which is the 23rd, I want to say, or is it the 24th? 23rd. 23rd is going to be our closing time together, which is going to include our uh, annual closing picnic. It's going to include our annual parents and leaders versus kids kickball game, which I still think the parents and leaders are undefeated. Uh, and, uh, and it's going to include our final lesson, and it's going to include a, a recognition of our graduates uh, that are c- re- graduating out of EPIC as well as bringing in our new epic crop for next year, which is our sixth graders moving up into seventh grade. Uh, so if you have a child that's in sixth grade moving up to seventh, they're welcome to join us on the 23rd. That It's kind of a function that it's, also, it's the end of one era, one season, and the beginning of another. And so that's going to be happening on the 23rd of May. And then on the 31st of May, which is our last Sunday in May, it's Memorial Day weekend, so there'll be nothing. So no, well, it's Sunday night... Epic Teens will be done for the summer at that point. All right, so I wanted to get all that across as far as announcements go. Um, I don't think I have any other announcements to make. I probably do. Oh, okay, yes? I have something really quick. I don't know if I'll need to purge. Just yell really loud. Maybe don't hear. Okay, this thought just came to me. My Aunt Amy is not here. It's her birthday this upcoming week. She has Alzheimer's, for those of you that don't know. Um, So there's a lot of times where she doesn't feel loved or she doesn't feel safe. And she is a member of the church. So I thought it would be amazing as a body to come together and bring cards next week for her. You can just put, you know, AABC Church family and just gather them all together and shower her with love because that would mean the world to her and us as well as the family. And then she would get, you know, a a feeling of acceptance and love and everything that she is going through right now. So if you could do that and bring them next week, like I said, this idea just popped in my head, so it's not like approved or anything, but I think it'd be okay. No, you can't do cards for people. No, that's not allowed, no. (laughs) Uh, yes, if you, that would be great if you guys want to support and uh, show love to Amy if you want to bring cards next week, or I'm sure you could mail them as well. Just talk to the Heard family, and they can help you with that. All right, great.
So uh, what we're going to do now is we are going to transition into our communion time. Again, if you do not have a cup, they are in the back. Mike's got a basket. If you need one, please raise your hand. He'd love to, to bring that to you. Um, <clears throat> this is always, as we come to this time every month, this is always one of those times that I sincerely look forward to because it is a time that we, it accomplishes a couple of things, really. First and foremost, it reminds us of the work of Christ, the work of Jesus on our behalf, that he died, and it also points to even his resurrection. Uh, and, and that is an opportunity that is well-received each month. Honestly, we should be reminding ourselves of these things every day, and sometimes we just take it for granted, but at least we have an opportunity once a month that kind of can't get away from it. We have to remember what Jesus has done and is still doing through his forgiveness and through uh, his incarnation and then becoming a man and then dying for us, and this is what we get to remember. And he knew that his disciples needed a, a symbol to remind them of what was about to happen when Jesus uh, sat down with them for the Last Supper. Uh, and as he did that with his disciples, he wanted them to remember what he was about to do. And then Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, as we'll look at today, repeats that and, and reminds Christians that it's important that we make this a normal practice. He would even say, as often as we eat and drink this cup. And, and I think this is where I want to say, like, as we do this once a month, don't let this be the only time that you dwell and think about the death of Jesus but this is an opportunity, what makes this even more special than what we get to do every day of our lives. Hopefully every morning we wake up and we can thank Jesus for his sacrifice on our behalf. But the other thing that this accomplishes as we come together is, doesn't matter how things are packaged, we are here to not only remember the death of Jesus and what he's done for us and the forgiveness that he offers and the new life that he gives through his death and through his blood, through his resurrection, but we get to do it together. We get to do this as a body, as a family. And so we not only are reminding ourselves, but we're really reminding one another. And so as we come into this time, I would just encourage you to think about that again. That this isn't just about you, this is about us. And we have an opportunity to remember the death of Christ, to thank him for it, to contemplate and think about all that that means, yes, in our lives, but also what it means for us as a family, what it means for us as a body. And that is a very powerful thing. And so even as we... Uh, come together after our service is over. It's an opportunity to fellowship. But it's not just an opportunity to fellowship and talk about uh, your favorite team or to talk about uh, the trivial things of this life, although that's fun and fine. I'm not saying you can't talk about those things. But would I encourage you even today to just even just say a word of praise to somebody else who is in our congregation as you have an opportunity. Somebody else in the family, a word of praise as you've thought about and meditated on the death of Jesus on your behalf and for all of us. And so in just a minute, we will take this. But until then, we're just going to have a little bit of uh, music playing. And as we do that, this time is, is not just, it's not about just making sure that uh, there's no sin in your life. Uh, if there is a sin in your life that you have not had any victory over, that's something you need to confess and repent of. And that happens each day of our lives. And so maybe today you, need, you do need to do that. But as we really take time to reflect, it's more to think and to thank Think about what Jesus has done. Thank him for what he's done. Thank him for what he's continuing to do. And just consider even praying, even as this goes, for somebody else in our body that you know has a need. All these are opportunities as the music plays. Would you just take a few minutes to silently reflect and pray? Let's do that now.
In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul reminds the believers in Corinth what we are to be remembering as we come together to eat and drink. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. The bread reminds us of the body that Christ broke for us, the body that Jesus took on himself, the flesh of man, and then died on our behalf, suffered on our behalf. And so Paul says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As Jesus did on that final supper with his disciples, that final Passover meal, Paul then reminds us in the same way also he took the cup. And this cup reminds us of the forgiveness that Jesus purchased for us through the shedding of his blood. But it also does point us forward to the fact that that shed blood would give forgiveness and that would be proven by his resurrection. And so he wants to remind his disciples and what we are reminded today as well as what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Would you join me as we close this communion portion of prayer? And as soon as I'm done praying, Pastor Justin will come up and begin preaching his message on prayer from Daniel. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you again for today. Thank you for the opportunity you've given us to be together to remember your death, to remember your resurrection, to remember all that you've done and to remember all who you are and to remember one another and how we can build each other up in you through your death, through your love for us. We can also love one another. Thank you for that reminder this morning and I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This would also be the time, by the way, for your children to go down to junior church. Thanks. like to pray one more time as we open up. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together this way. We're grateful for the time that we have together in this building, in this place. We thank you that your word has power to change us in ways that nothing else can. And so we come now eager to be impacted by your word. And so would you open our hearts? Would you help us to Have open ears. Enable us, Father, to listen well. Enable us to respond well to the word that you have for us this morning. Thank you for speaking 
so clearly in this book. Help us to understand, help us to respond, help us to believe and obey. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's always fascinated me that there are so many prayers recorded for us in the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament. The reason I'm intrigued by that fact is probably because Jesus' disciples still felt the need to ask Jesus to teach them to pray. Luke 11.1 1 says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Notice three things about that request. First, Given that this request comes right after Jesus had been praying, I assume that they must have seen and heard him praying, and they recognized something different, something unique about the way Jesus prayed. Second, John the baptizer had instructed his disciples how to pray. Some of Jesus' disciples had been John's disciples, and yet they still need Jesus to teach them to pray. Third, the model or the template that Jesus provides in response to this request doesn't really match anything that we see in the Old Testament, at least not all in one place. However, each petition certainly does resonate with Old Testament Scripture. It's as though Jesus has pulled together certain elements from the Old Testament and helped the disciples and us See how to prioritize our requests when we pray. For us, however, we will still find value in the prayers recorded in the Old Testament, and they certainly stand alongside the relatively few occasions where the contents of Jesus' prayers were actually recorded for us. And of course, Jesus teaches about prayer several times during his ministry. He uses stories and parables and illustrations to help us understand not only how to prioritize our petitions properly, but also how our attitudes and expectations should be shaped, what our motives should be, and what wondrous access we have to our Heavenly Father's ears. Given how much teaching there is in Scripture about prayer, and given how many records we have of what godly people prayed on certain occasions, I am struck, dumbfounded even, when I hear people talk about prayer as though it should be the easiest, most natural thing in the world for a child of God. I've probably been guilty of saying something like that. If we're willing to be honest, most of us, I think, would admit how hard praying is at times. Yet, some people keep trying to define prayer as simply conversation with God, as though praying is the same kind of experience as chatting with a buddy over coffee. Some of us would even admit to feeling guilty about how poorly we pray. And we'd further admit that we don't really know what to do about it. We hear stories about the great prayer warriors of the past who got up before the crack of dawn and spent hours in prayer before they even cracked an egg for breakfast. We try to pray for 15 minutes and we're quickly ashamed by how easily distracted our minds are. This morning we're going to look at arguably one of the most wonderful prayers recorded in the Bible and we will seek to take away some practical principles to help strengthen our praying. I have been praying this week that looking at this passage will indeed stir us all to pray. 
We learned how important prayer was to Daniel back in chapter 6. We learned there that his normal practice was to pray at least three times a day in his home in Babylon, facing the direction of Jerusalem with the windows opened. And he was willing to continue this practice even when he was threatened with death if he were observed praying this way. In Daniel chapter 9, we get to learn the contents of what he prayed on one of those occasions. And it's possible, though there's no way to prove it absolutely, that the prayer of Daniel 9 was actually the prayer that got him thrown to the lions in Daniel 6. As we look at Daniel's prayer, we're going to see two fascinating realities that may challenge the way we all think about prayer. First, we're going to see how structured Daniel's prayer is. He has recorded these words in a very purposeful manner. There is This is no stream of consciousness kind of spontaneous praying. In Hebrew, the contents of the prayer from verses 4 to 19 takes only about three minutes to read out loud. Second, we're going to see how biblical Daniel's prayer is. And what I mean by biblical is that the words and phrases Daniel uses are drawn from his Bible. One fellow has calculated that as much as 85% of the phrases in Daniel's prayer are unique phrases drawn from specific passages of Scripture. The occasion of prayer is prompted by his study of Scripture. And the contents of his prayer are saturated with words and phrases and ideas from earlier Scripture. These two facts may challenge us because we're going to find that Daniel's prayer is deeply emotional and incredibly personal. Some of us may have a tendency to think that structure and planning what we are going to say to God when we pray somehow takes something away from the experience. The prayers recorded in Scripture should obliterate this assumption. Commentator Christopher Wright has some good words on this point. And yet, of course, just because it is full of scriptural phraseology does not mean that it is not personal prayer. This is Daniel's own urgent, intense, intimate engagement with God. But as he enters into that work, the words of his mouth echo the words of Scripture in his heart, the words of God himself. It's a good model to follow. God speaks to us in and through Scripture, and we speak back to Him in prayer. Let no one convince you that this doesn't reflect an intimate relationship with God. 20th century Scottish theologian P.T. Forsyth once wrote, Let us nurse our prayer on our study of our Bible, and let us therefore not be too afraid of theological prayer. Daniel was a man who set the example for this exhortation. One pastor adds to this, the Word of God is the best schoolroom in which we can learn the grammar and language of prayer. That is what we'll set out to do this morning, digging into Daniel's great prayer of confession in Daniel chapter 9. So let's begin by looking at the setting of his prayer as it was prompted by his Bible study. Look at verses 1 to 3. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of Yahweh to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. 
Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. The year was 538 B.C. Darius the Mede is probably the same man called Cyrus the Persian elsewhere. He was Median on his mother's side and Persian on his father's side. He was made king over Babylon. Daniel uses that passive voice again to imply that Yahweh, the God of Israel, made Darius king of Babylon. This is the same Darius of chapter 6, the one who would throw Daniel to the lions. This is the Cyrus that the prophet Isaiah had named as Yahweh's servant, his anointed one, whom he would use to bring the Jews back to the promised land and to enable them to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But that hasn't happened quite yet. But Daniel has been reading his Bible. Specifically, he's been reading the prophetic words of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah had specified that there would be a period of 70 years before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. Said differently, Yahweh had revealed to Jeremiah when the end of the exile would come. We can read what Daniel was reading. A message had been given to Jeremiah the prophet in the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign over Babylon, which was 605 B.C. What's fascinating about that year is that it would have been the same year that Nebuchadnezzar marched into Jerusalem and kidnapped Daniel and many other Jewish young people. Thus, it's likely that young Daniel may have heard this announcement in person before he left Jerusalem. And now he's rereading those words in Scripture. Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12 is the key passage. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares Yahweh, making the land an everlasting waste. The word translated ruin is related to the word Daniel uses, translated desolations. Darius the Mede has just conquered Babylon in fulfillment of this prophecy. Daniel perceives that the time for the end of the exile, the time for the restoration of the people to their land must be coming soon. But another prophecy from Jeremiah is certainly in view here as well. Jeremiah 29 contains the contents of a letter Jeremiah sent to the exiles in Babylon. Sometimes shortly after Nebuchadnezzar's second invasion of Jerusalem in 597 BC, surely Daniel would have received it read it, and recognized it as the word of Yahweh. The key passage from that letter is verses 10 to 14. For thus says Yahweh, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares Yahweh, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares Yahweh, 
and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Exile is not the last word, not the final judgment for God's people. Daniel recognizes that the Lord has put a time limit on the exile, but he also heeds the call to pray. Daniel has been in Babylon since 605 B.C. The year is now 538 B.C., and Babylon has fallen. If you're doing the math, you'll recognize that it hasn't quite been exactly 70 years since Babylon first invaded Jerusalem. It's possible that Daniel knows that the full 70 years haven't passed, but since Babylon has been conquered, he goes ahead and prays to ask the Lord to intervene early. Or perhaps we're to view the 70-year period as a round number, an estimate. Or perhaps it has a generic, symbolic meaning, a way of communicating roughly one lifetime, which it does in the Bible at least a couple of times, Psalm 90, verse 10, and Isaiah 23, 15, which you can see on the screen, says, "...in that day Tyre will be forgotten for seventy years." Like the days of one king, at the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the prostitute. Or, with some ancient Near Eastern evidence for support, many students of Scripture have suggested that 70 years may stand as a figure of speech for a complete period of judgment, thus combining a symbolic and theological purpose. Or, perhaps... There's a biblical theological significance to the mention of 70 years. We do get a theological explanation for why the exile must last 70 years in 2 Chronicles 36, verses 17 to 21. In verse 18, the chronicler mentions Nebuchadnezzar robbing the Jerusalem temple as well as the king's palace. The first time he did this was 605 B.C., Then in verse 19, the chronicler notes the destruction of the temple when Nebuchadnezzar brought about in his third invasion of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. Then we read in verses 20 and 21, He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So the chronicler seems to give both the fullest chronological explanation and also provides a theological rationale for why 70 years. We'll examine that theological rationale more next Sunday. But the chronology of the chronicler from 605 B.C. to the establishment of the Medo-Persian Empire in 538 B.C. matches the time frame indicated by Daniel. Almost, but not quite exactly 70 years. In any case, Daniel perceives from his Bible study that it's time to start praying. Asking God to do what he promised to do through the prophet Jeremiah. In verse 3, he describes his praying as, Then I turned my face to the Lord God. Possibly this reflects him physically turning toward Jerusalem, even though the temple is no longer there. Furthermore, he characterizes his prayer as, Please for mercy, as the ESV has it. 
The King James Version and the New American Standard Bible have supplications, and the NIV merely says petition. This is actually a grace word in Hebrew, emphasizing that Daniel recognizes that what he's about to ask God to do, neither the prophet nor the people deserve for God to do. He'll say as much in the content of his prayer, but as he introduces this prayer in this verse, he uses a word that highlights the reality that Daniel and the Jews deserve to remain in exile. They deserve for God to leave them in exile and continue pouring out his wrath against them. Nevertheless, Daniel prays on behalf of his people and he fasts. Perhaps this means that at least one of the three times Daniel prayed during the day was a mealtime, so that instead of eating, he prayed. Or perhaps on this particular day, he didn't eat at all. Moreover, while he's praying, he's wearing the sackcloth, the itchy, uncomfortable garb often worn by mourners in the ancient world. And he sprinkles ashes on his head. These three gestures together were practiced at times by folks in the ancient world to signify to observers that the person is grieving some terrible loss or expressing deep humility because of some calamity or seeking to repent from sin. Now, as we begin to look at the content of Daniel's prayer, we can see that it breaks down into two main sections. Verses 4 to 15 give us Daniel's corporate confession. And verses 16 to 19 give us Daniel's actual requests, his plea for grace. Let's read verses 4 to 15, and then we'll break down how beautifully structured this corporate confession really is. I prayed to Yahweh my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Yahweh, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him and have not obeyed the voice of Yahweh our God by walking in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against them. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. 
Yet we have not entreated the favor of Yahweh our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, Yahweh has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For Yahweh our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Now as we read that, you probably noticed a good bit of repetition. There is some definite structuring going on here. Daniel has crafted this prayer of confession with several parallels. The confession breaks down into two distinct sections, verses 4 through the first half of verse 11, and the second half of verse 11 through verse 15. The first section is Daniel's acknowledgement of sin. The structure of the first section looks like this next slide there. Verses 4 and 5 provide a summary confession where Daniel admits that we have sinned in every possible way. The rest of this section is structured with these parallels that you can see in that outline so that he cries out in direct address to God using the personal name Yahweh right in the center as the first word of verse 8 in Hebrew. The references to God's personal name in this chapter should draw our notice. In all of the book of Daniel, only here in chapter 9 does the prophet use God's personal name, Yahweh. And you will see it in your English Bibles as Lord, all caps, eight times in this chapter. We'll consider the significance of this in just a minute. Now, if you'll go on to the next slide, you can see that Daniel shifts to a different kind of parallel structure for the second half of this section, where he acknowledges their exile as deserved punishment, as laid out in the law of Moses, and he emphatically repeats three times, we have sinned, we have not repented, and we have not obeyed. The exile is described with the phrase great calamity in verse 12, and then again with the word calamity in verse 14. That word is translated evil in the King James Version. In verse 15, he provides a summary conclusion that parallels with the summary introduction of verses 4 and 5. Let's take a look at the details. First, we consider the summary intro in verses 4 to 5. Here, Daniel says that he prayed and made confession. Why is he confessing here? Going back to the Mosaic Law, God had announced that the people would surely rebel and that he would surely send them into exile. Leviticus 26 stands in the background here. Remember how 2 Chronicles 36 had indicated that the reason the exile needed to be 70 years was so that the land could enjoy its Sabbaths. That goes back to Leviticus 26, verses 34 and 35. After the Lord had indicated that if they refused to obey his word, he would devastate the land and exile the people so that the land would be laid waste, ruined, and desolate. Then he says, Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. So already, within the Mosaic Law, God had indicated that the people would fail to allow the land to have its Sabbaths. More on that next Sunday. 
But then in Leviticus 26, 40, the Lord says, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, and then skipping down to verse 42, Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. Daniel knows from his Bible that the promises of restoration from exile are contingent on the people's confession of sin and repentance. Jeremiah 29 had commanded the people to pray. Leviticus 26 commands the people to confess. Daniel here represents the people. This is corporate confession. In our Western world today, we don't have a real great understanding of this concept. We have a tendency to want to distance ourselves from other people's sins and failures. We're quick to point fingers and rise up in judgment. You get no hint of that from Daniel here. His mentality is, we are in this together. He is certainly accountable for his own personal sin, and he is confessing that too. But his focus in this prayer is actually taking responsibility for the sins of other people. He recognizes an important biblical truth that we need to embrace as Christians. My sin impacts all of you, and your sin impacts me, even if it is private or hidden. That is why Jesus gave us such serious instructions on dealing with sin in the family. Loving speck removal is a legitimate ministry in the church. See Matthew 7. Paul used the metaphor of setting bones that had been broken when he instructed the Galatians to restore someone trapped in sinful patterns. See Galatians 6. As Daniel opens his prayer, he addresses God as Lord. O Lord, the great and awesome God. This is not the name Yahweh. This is the Hebrew title Adonai. He addresses God first and foremost as the sovereign master of the universe, ruler of all things, Lord and owner of his people. Commentator Stephen Miller says of this address, not only was he able to hear Daniel's prayer, but he had the power to direct the affairs of world history in answer to his prayer. A great and awesome God indeed. Is that what you think of when you address God as Lord? Are you consciously thinking of Him as the one who can direct the affairs of world history to answer your prayer? Furthermore, God is the one who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. God is faithful to keep His covenant both His promises of blessing and restoration and His promises of judgment and desolation. God kept His covenant when He exiled the Jews. Now, Daniel calls on Him to keep His covenant and restore the Jews to the land. But notice that His steadfast love, His loyal devotion, is directed specially toward those who love Him and obey His word. The faithful God must have a faithful covenant partner. 
Thus far, up to Daniel's day, the people of Israel had proven over and over again their inability to be that faithful, obedient covenant partner. How then will they survive? How will they be restored? Stay tuned. In verse 5, he offers a summary confession of the people's sin. He uses five verbs to indicate the people's failure, and he includes himself as guilty. This series of verbs reflects the language of Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8.47, where Solomon had prayed to this same covenant-keeping God and anticipated the rebellion and exile of the people in line with what the Mosaic law had indicated already. And he asked God, Solomon already asked God, to forgive them and restore them to the land if and when they acknowledged their rebellion and repented. Daniel is seeking to do just that on behalf of the people in exile. I've got to wonder how many folks in Babylon were like Daniel in this regard. How many Jews, do you suppose, were aware that 70 years had almost elapsed? How many Jews were ready to acknowledge their sin and rebellion? How many were standing to pray like Daniel, pleading for grace? Reading the rest of the story, I can't imagine it was very many. But there's an important lesson here. You don't need a multitude to pray. Sometimes we can slip into the error of thinking that God isn't going to answer my prayer unless I get 50 others to ask for the same thing. Or maybe God would give the help I need if somebody more holy were praying. Like an elder or something. Or we can get frustrated when other people don't seem to be praying for the same things that we are. And we can slip into thinking that the reason God isn't acting is because other people aren't praying. Can I challenge you to take up the mindset of Daniel here? If you want to ask God to act in a particular way, especially in a way that lines up with His promises in the Scriptures as you understand them, then get busy praying. And don't worry about whether anybody else is asking God to do the same thing or not. Daniel may very well have been alone in his praying, and yet we're going to see how quickly God sent an answer on this particular occasion. Do you think God loves you any less than he loved Daniel? In verse 6, Daniel begins elaborating the confession, the acknowledgement of sin, In this prayer, including what we saw in verse 5, he uses eight different Hebrew words to characterize the people's sin. And he refers to their sin 21 times. But there are two sides to confession. We speak of confessing sin, but we also speak of a confession of faith. And there's a bit of both in this prayer. In the structural outline of these verses, we see the parallels, the alternation between Daniel highlighting God's character and Israel's character. And the opening and closing statement on their primary problem being a failure to listen to God's word. A failure to heed God's word. In verse 6, he begins highlighting their resistance to the prophets. And he implicates everybody in the nation from the top down. Prophets were gifts of God's grace sent by him to call the people to repent. Their messages were clear and repetitive. God had given plenty of opportunities for the people to repent before they went into exile and even while they were in exile. 
Jeremiah labored in Jerusalem, calling the Jewish rebels to repent and then instructing them how to live appropriately in exile because they didn't repent. Ezekiel received wild visions in Babylon and made it very clear to the people that they deserved to be in exile while also promising a glorious restoration to come in the future. Every bit of verse 6 comes from the language of Jeremiah's prophecies. In verse 7, Daniel contrasts God with his people. Righteousness belongs to the Lord. Daniel is saying that God was right to punish the people as he did. He was just. He never wronged anyone. By contrast, the people are characterized by open shame, or more literally, shame of face. Shame that is visible in a person's expression. At the end of verse 7, he characterizes their sin as treachery. This is the polar opposite of steadfast love. This is betrayal and rebellion. This is adultery in marriage. This is the language we saw in Leviticus 26. The first word of verse 8 is the divine name, Yahweh. As we noted earlier, the name only appears in this chapter in the whole book of Daniel. The prophet highlights this personal name here because the covenant relationship between God and His people is at stake. It is to these people that He revealed His personal name through Moses all the way back in Exodus 3. It is this name that the people are supposed to bear. They are supposed to be the people called by this name, Yahweh's people. Yet they have profaned His name. They have lived in such a way that makes Him look weak, makes Him look foolish to the nations. Daniel calls on the covenant God by his covenant name to restore the covenant relationship. Another contrast comes between God and his people in verses 8 and 9. The people are characterized again by open shame, while God is characterized by mercy and forgiveness. When we pull verse 7 in with verse 9, we find God being characterized by righteousness or justice on the one hand and mercy and forgiveness on the other. Isn't this the grand tension in the character of the God of the Bible? How can He be both just and merciful at the same time? How can it be right for God to forgive sins? How can He extend mercy to sinners and maintain His justice? Ah, Christian, don't you know the answer? Someone greater than Daniel has come to represent God's people. Someone greater than Daniel has done more than intercede on behalf of God's sinful people. To paraphrase the words of the Apostle Paul from Romans 3, 25 and 26, God publicly presented Jesus, His own beloved Son, to live in the place of sinners, to die in the place of sinners, to endure God's frown, God's righteous anger, His judgment against sins, and to Turn God's frown upside down. God had not previously punished His people's sins to the fullest extent they deserved. Even Daniel knew that. In Jesus' death on the cross, God proves His justice once and for all, demonstrating His ability to justify and forgive all sinful people who trust Jesus. What motivated God to do this? Grace. Forgiveness is offered as a gift to all who will trust Jesus. The greatest tension of the Bible is resolved in Jesus. It is to God's mercy 
grace, steadfast love, and willingness to forgive that Daniel now appeals. As Daniel addresses the Lord by name, he may have in the back of his mind this very tension connected to the name in Exodus 34, 5 through 7. When Moses asked the Lord to let Moses see his glory, we read these words, Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. For Daniel, the confession of Yahweh's character is just as important as the confession of the people's sin. And it is important for him to hold them together. They've experienced the justice of Yahweh. They've experienced him not clearing the guilty. Now, Daniel appeals to the mercy and grace of God. And he will leave it to God to resolve the tension. In the rest of verse 9 and on through verse 11, Daniel again highlights the people's rebellion in refusing to obey God's word. A problem Moses pointed out of the first generation of Israelites who would enter the promised land after his death repeatedly in Deuteronomy. Note the universal language of verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. The punishment of exile has been fully deserved. Now, in the rest of verse 11, he moves to the acknowledgement of the punishment. The exile has been in accord with the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy, which became the law of Moses that the Jews would have read and studied, Yahweh didn't just warn the people of the dangers of disobedience. Yahweh told Moses that the people would, in fact, rebel and break the covenant relationship. Here's Deuteronomy 31.16. And Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then in Deuteronomy 32, we get what is often called the Song of Moses. But it's better recognized as the Song of Yahweh a song that serves as a witness against the rebellious people. The people were supposed to memorize the song and pass it down through the generations as though it was to serve as Israel's national anthem. The song tells the story of Yahweh's deliverance of the people from Egypt, leading them through the wilderness, and indicates their imminent possession of the promised land. But then the bulk of the song prophetically and poetically describes how the people will reject him in the land and turn to idolatry and how he will punish them with exile. It describes much of the calamity that Yahweh would bring upon his rebellious people, the calamity Daniel mentions in verses 12 and 14. Yahweh has fulfilled the words of his judgment song. Note verse 13. Daniel says that up to this point, We have not entreated the favor of Yahweh. This particular idiom always appears in the Old Testament to describe someone seeking grace or mercy in spite of the fact that the seeker has no legal right to demand it and does not deserve it. 
So at one level, it makes sense that they haven't done this. But on the other hand, there's a kind of boldness in Daniel's praying here. And this also may hint at Daniel's aloneness in his praying this way. But look at the way he characterizes the goal of entreating the favor of Yahweh. The hoped-for outcome of seeking God's grace would be that the people turn from our iniquities and gain insight by your truth. They need to ask God for grace in order to turn from their sin. What Daniel is describing is the reality that God's grace is required for repentance. This is the Old Testament backdrop for Paul's indication that repentance must be granted by God. It is a gift of God's grace. The people in exile do not have the ability to turn from their guilt and sin. They do not have the ability to receive life-changing benefit from the truth of God's Word. There's a lot of talk these days about speaking your truth or living your truth. If you're a follower of Jesus, don't get sucked into the worldliness of talking like that. Christians, we have to be people who insist on speaking God's truth, living out God's truth. It is God's truth found right here in this book that we have to cling to, that must define our lives, shape our living, and transform our thinking. Remember, we follow a man who claimed to be absolute truth. We worship a God apart from whom truth cannot be rightly understood or known or responded to. The emphasis in Daniel's confession is on the people's failure to obey God's voice, to listen to His Word and respond appropriately. That is the very foundation of rebellion against God. Go to the garden in Genesis and you will see the foundation of sin being a distortion and rejection of the words God had said. Show me someone who doesn't care about what God has said in this book. And I'll show you a person who is in rebellion against God and doesn't know Jesus. First John 4, 6 says it this way. We, John and his apostolic companions, are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Daniel provides a summary conclusion to his confession in verse 15 before he transitions to pleading for grace. He addresses the God of the Exodus, looking back to the gospel for those ancient Jews, the events of God rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. As with many other prophets before Daniel, he is anticipating that God will accomplish another Exodus, rescuing them from their slavery in Babylon. Let's now look at what Daniel asks God to do. Daniel's plea for grace in verses 16 to 19. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. 
Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Consider that Daniel is a very old man. He will not return to Judah even after Cyrus allows the Jews to go home. This is not a prayer for himself. When God answers this prayer through the angel Gabriel, much of what he says will shock Daniel. But when God works through the Persian king to enable the Jews to go back to the promised land, Daniel will not go. With the Jews begin rebuilding their temple, Daniel may already be dead. Daniel here prays for God's city and for God's people. He again acknowledges God's righteousness and justice in punishing the people in exile. But he asks him to turn away his righteous anger anyway. The people haven't changed. They deserve to remain in exile. They continue in their rebellion against God. In verse 17, the word translated please for mercy appears again. This grace word. He pleads with God to listen the very thing that the people were refusing to do. A pastor named Mitch Chase writes about this plea. Wrath removed would be mercy. A land once again filled with worshipers would be mercy. City walls erected would be mercy. The temple brimming with God-honoring sacrifices would be mercy. Daniel prayed for mercy because he believed what Scripture taught about God. Daniel's primary motivation in praying is given right here. For your own sake. He's asking the Lord to do all this for the Lord's own sake. His reputation is bound up with that of his people. And in Babylon and now in Persia, they are stinking up his reputation. The land he claimed for his people is desolate, empty of his people. The temple where he said he would dwell is flattened. The people are scattered abroad, most of them enjoying themselves, never intending to go home, not looking for the fulfillment of God's promise. But if the Lord would fulfill His promises in the sight of the nations, if He would miraculously, unexpectedly bring the people back to the land, if He would enable them to rebuild their temple, to begin worshiping Him there again, wouldn't the nations take notice? Wouldn't His reputation be restored? And wouldn't he then fulfill all of the other promises he had made, going all the way back to Abraham, that through his descendants, blessing would come to all nations? Daniel draws on the language of Numbers 6.25, the priestly blessing to be pronounced over all the people. But here, Daniel prays, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Restore blessing for the temple, he's asking. Will God dwell in the temple in Jerusalem once again? The answer to that question must come another time. As he moves to conclude his prayer, his petitions become shorter, more staccato, rapid fire. He's bold enough to metaphorically, anthropomorphically call on God as though he were a human. Incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations. 
Listen, Lord. Look, Lord. He's not praying to God because of His or the people's righteousness, but He is pleading to God because of His great mercy. The phrase translated, present our pleas before you, is more literally, we are causing our plea for grace to fall before you. A figure of speech describing his prayer as though it were an object that he's throwing on the ground in front of the great king, demonstrating his desperate situation and his utter dependence on the king's favorable response. Nevertheless, Daniel is bold in his praying here. He calls on God to hurry up and answer. And as we'll see in a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks, God does hurry up and give an answer, even before Daniel's actually finished praying. In verses 20 to 23, we'll see that God dispatched his faithful messenger angel Gabriel to once again speak with Daniel. And verses 24 to 27 contain the answer God has for Daniel's prayer. And we'll need to remember that the 70 weeks prophecy is just that, an answer to God's, to Daniel's prayer. Next Sunday, we'll take a detour to explore a necessary biblical backdrop before diving into those difficult verses. Even more than Daniel the prophet, we should, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need, as the author of the Hebrews puts it. Daniel's confession of sin is rich. He pulls no punches about his own guilt and the guilt of his people. Honest confession is a mark of a Christian. We should be fearless in our confession of sin, of our own sin, because Jesus has paid the penalty for all of our sin. When we sin, the only appropriate response is to admit it, both to God and to others. Christians don't hide their sin. Christians don't minimize their sin. Christians don't seek to justify their sin. 1 John 1.9 is relevant here, of course. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because of Jesus' death in our place and for our sins, God is now just, righteous, to forgive our sins. This ought to blow your mind. This is different from what Daniel experienced. This is better than Daniel's situation. Daniel could only appeal to God's mercy and God's grace to anticipate forgiveness. In the Old Testament, God expresses His justice when He punishes sin. But now that Jesus has offered Himself as the final sacrifice... God's anger against all who trust in Jesus is forever gone, never to return. Christians freely admit when we sin because we know that there is now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus has fully satisfied God's justice in our case. As we close, I want to quickly give some practical advice on how to pray the Bible. When people tell me that they have a hard time with prayer, I empathize. I get it. I really do. But many times, when someone says they're struggling to pray, I'm not surprised when I find out that they're not consistently reading their Bibles either. 
I believe it is God's design that Bible reading, hearing God's voice through the words printed on these pages, goes hand in hand with prayer. And I believe that for many, embracing this understanding of what a normal, conversational relationship with God is supposed to look like can revolutionize your experience of prayer. So here are four ways to pray the Bible. It's all about responding to what you read or what you hear in the Scriptures. First, when you read about God's attributes, praise Him. We just glanced at 1 John 1, 9, which highlights God's faithfulness and justice. And so we pray in response, Lord, we praise you for your faithfulness and justice. How wonderful that you've resolved the tension of your justice and your mercy in the death of your son. When you read about God's character in your Bible, praise him. Pause to praise him. Second, when you read of God's promises, do what Daniel did. Ask God to fulfill them. When we read about Jesus' return, we should pray like Paul, Maranatha, come Lord, or like John, come Lord Jesus. Also, when we read of God's promises, we should ask God to enable us to believe them. When we're going through trials, it can be hard, very hard, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the pressure, to believe that God is really producing benefits for us the way Paul insists that he does in Romans 5. I have read Romans 5, verses 3 to 5, while my life was being pressed and squeezed with various difficulties. And I found it very difficult to believe that my suffering was really producing endurance. I wanted to give up. But I asked the Lord to help me believe the truth presented there. And eventually... God enabled me to believe His Word. Read His promises, ask Him to fulfill them, and ask Him for faith to believe what He has said He will do. Third, when you read of God's history, thank Him for what He's done. So much of the Bible is history, a written record of God doing things. When we read Genesis 1, we can thank Him for creating everything good. When we read Genesis 12, we can thank Him for choosing Abraham's family to bring ultimate blessing to the world. When we read the Gospels, we can thank Him for all the ways Jesus revealed God to us while He was here on the earth. And when we read the passion narratives at the ends of the Gospels, we can thank Jesus personally for dying on the cross and rising from the dead to accomplish our salvation. Read God's history And thank Him specifically for the wonderful things He has done. Finally, when you read God's commands, ask Him to enable you to obey them. There's certainly overlap in all of these things, especially this one, since God has promised to enable us to obey His commands. When we read 1 Corinthians 6.18, where Paul commands us to flee from sexual immorality... We can ask God to enable us to flee from sexual immorality in all of its forms. When we husbands read commands for us to love our wives, we can ask God to enable us to love our wives. 
Because we won't do it as Christ loves the church if God doesn't help us. When wives read the commands for them to respect and submit to their husbands, they can ask God to help them obey those commands. Because we husbands sure won't make it easy for them. Also, to bring us full circle, when we read commands in the Bible and we realize how we failed to obey them, we can confess to God our specific failures and then we can ask God to enable us to repent. Now, if you've never tried doing something like this, it might sound like you'd never get through with your Bible reading. You'd read a verse and then stop to pray. And that's not always a bad idea. We don't always need to be so goal-focused in our Bible reading. Got to check that box off. Got to make sure I get through those two chapters today. Sometimes that's a good thing. But it's also good to read slowly sometimes. However, the suggestions I've given are not intended to be practiced all at once, all the time. Maybe read a chapter or a couple of chapters and then pray. Respond in prayer to what you've read and what you remember from your whole reading. You may find your praying shaped by what you read in lots of different ways. If you want to think more about how to do this, I recommend a book by Donald Whitney entitled Praying the Bible. He uses the Psalms as a guide and suggests some other strategies besides what I've shared today. Let me close with just a couple of my favorite quotes about prayer. I've collected a number of bite-sized and bigger bite-sized quotations from my reading over the years on the topic of prayer. And there are some real gems, so let me share a couple with you. From Timothy Keller's excellent book entitled Prayer, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God, he writes, Our prayers should arise out of immersion in the Scripture. We should plunge ourselves into the sea of God's language, the Bible. We should listen, study, think, reflect, and ponder the Scriptures until there is an answering response in our hearts and minds. If the goal of prayer is a real personal connection with God, then it is only by immersion in the language of the Bible that we will learn to pray, perhaps just as slowly as a child learns to speak. Without immersion in God's words, our prayers may not be merely limited and shallow, but also untethered from reality. We may be responding not to the real God, but to what we wish God and life to be like. From Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life, which Pastor Ken reflected on in a couple of video devotionals last year, Paul Miller writes, Don't hunt for a feeling in prayer. Deep in our psyches, we want an experience with God or an experience in prayer. Once we make that our quest, we lose God. You don't experience God. You get to know Him. You submit to Him. You enjoy Him. He is, after all, a person. Two final quotes from Miller and we'll be done. We look at the inadequacy of our praying and give up, thinking something's wrong with us. God looks at the adequacy of His Son and delights in our sloppy, meandering prayers. I love that line. 
Final word from Miller. Prayer mirrors the gospel. In the gospel, the Father takes us as we are because of Jesus and gives us his gift of salvation. In prayer, the Father receives us as we are because of Jesus and gives us his gift of help. Let's pray together now. Oh, Father, thank you for these models, these examples, these illustrations of people praying in the Scriptures. Thank you for Jesus' own teaching. Thank you that you speak to us through the words printed on these pages. If we ever want to hear you speak, we can open these pages and hear it anytime we want to. We are a privileged people. We have access to you and your voice 24-7. And you hear us when we pray 24-7. Thank you for stooping down to our level. Thank you for coming into this world in your Son, Jesus. Becoming a man to take on the weariness of life and to carry our sin to provide forgiveness that is lasting and total. We depend on your mercy day by day. We, pit, we depend on your grace day by day. Thank you for an infinite supply that will never run out. And so we keep coming. We keep asking. We keep seeking. We keep knocking as you have welcomed us to do. Thank you, Father, for being such a loving dad who draws us into your home, draws us into your fellowship, draws us up into intimacy with you. And we all long for it. Would you help us, Father? Would you help us experience intimacy with you day by day, moment by moment? Make us aware of your presence with us. Your promises are so glorious and they will come true. Thank you for your faithfulness. We do honor you and praise you for the ways that you've shown it, both in judgment and in salvation. You are the great and awesome God. Help us pray consistently. Pray without ceasing is what the Apostle Paul said. Help us to be engaged with you all the time because you're with us all the time. We commit our lives, we commit our prayers to you in Jesus' name. Amen.